Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week's episode was recorded before the explosion outside Kabul airport, as time runs out for Afghans desperate to flee the country. It's a catastrophe in terms of people's hopes and dreams and even their ability to feed themselves this takeover. No one can really be sure about the future. Questions about Britain's reliance on the United States. What capability do we have to have to stand up for ourselves with our friends and not be so reliant on the US? And how veterans of the conflict see the fall of Afghanistan. It's not just something that we read about in the news about a place that's far away. It's, you know, it's it's our close links. These, these are the people that we seriously care about. Time is running out for Afghans desperate to escape a country now in Taliban hands. America's reluctance to extend the evacuation deadline and the Taliban's insistence that foreign forces must leave by the end of August means there's very little time left to move those most at risk of reprisals. Britain, the US and others are also now focused on how to safely withdraw their remaining forces. Lieutenant Colonel David Middleton is the commanding officer of Tupara, part of a thousand-strong British presence at Kabul's airport. People have sort of risen to the challenge, accepted what's been put in front of them, and we really focused on the importance of recovering the, the, uh, the entitled personnel, doing their mission and doing it for a good cause. Not many will have seen scenes such as this. But again, driven by that real sense of purpose, um, they've actually absolutely been committed to the task um, and we'll see it through to the end. Well, later we'll talk about the impact this deployment's likely to have and how the fall of Afghanistan is affecting veterans. But first, the situation in Afghanistan. Kate Clark is coordinator of the Afghanistan Analysts Network and until earlier this month was based in Kabul. It's been a chaotic process. I've been trying to help various people to get out who are in particular danger. There's citizens of, of other countries, like I, I was evacuated. There's people who've directly helped, for example, the British forces. There are people who are absolutely in imminent danger. So they are on Taliban lists. They're high-profile people, or they've been working in intelligence or security. And then there's the whole mass of people who are just trying to get out because they don't want to live in an unstable, chaotic Taliban regime. And you got out of Kabul a little over a week ago. Have you been able to find out what's happened to friends of yours still in the city? A real mix. And again, it depends on how how they feel about the Taliban. Some are quite sanguine. Others are personally terrified. They're in hiding. They're moving every night. And then there's others who are just in despair because they know they've either they've lived through the Taliban or they've heard the tales. You know, I've got one friend, he's illiterate. He didn't have a chance to go to school. He's poor, he's put everything into his kids getting a, an education. He's got teenage daughters. What is their future? A, they may be forced into early marriage or, or at, at least they don't have the future that they did a week ago. And in all of this, is it fair to say that the only surprise is not that the Taliban have returned to power, but that they were able to do it so quickly? No, this was not inevitable, not in the slightest. Even a few weeks ago, it wasn't inevitable. The Afghan government was weak and corrupt. The Afghan security services had been hollowed out by corruption, poor leadership. The ex-president changed all the, almost all the core commanders this year, some of them twice. He changed the defence minister 
changed the interior minister twice. But people did not want the Taliban on the whole. I would say the majority of the population did not want the Taliban. They needed leadership. They needed resources. We kept hearing tales of you know, poor soldiers, poor police, out in the sticks, couldn't get bullets, couldn't get food, weren't paid. We had people who wanted to resist, who were organised to resist. And the former president, Ashraf Ghani, was not sending them resources to do that, not sending either money or ammunition. So in very, very practical terms, this was not inevitable. And then you have to look at the American policy for the last three years. They've, they've basically been appeasing the Taliban. They had this fake peace process, which actually boosted the Taliban, boosted them militarily and, and, and their morale, while it weakened the government. It's absolutely clear we, we've been mapping the Taliban getting more and more confident as the US gave them more and more concessions and pressurised the Kabul government to give the Taliban concessions. When you talk about those negotiations that led to the US-Taliban deal in Doha, do you think that then was a strategic miscalculation by the US or do you think the negotiators, the American negotiators, were aware of the likely final outcome? Well, if you look at, you know, the Soviet Union was occupying Afghanistan for 10 years in the 80s. They spent the last three years, they knew when they were leaving, they spent their last three years bolstering the Kabul government. Look at what America has done. It spent the last three years sidelining the Afghan government, talking to the Taliban, doing a deal which basically gave so much away, gave the Taliban a timetable for the US and international troops withdrawal. The Americans agreed that 5,000 Taliban prisoners would be released. It agreed not to attack the Taliban. So it meant that the Taliban were free to attack the Afghan forces without fear of American airstrikes. The Americans insisted that the Afghan forces took a stance that they, they called active defence. They weren't allowed to attack the Taliban. They could only do defensive action or preemptive defence. So if they saw, for example, that there was you know, an attack coming, they, they were allowed to take offensive action at that point. So they, could, they watched while the Taliban consolidated territory. We're seeing a pattern where the Taliban are trying to take all the power for themselves. They're very narrowly based in terms of who they are. They're all clerics. They're all fighting clerics. They're mainly ethnic Pashtuns. They're mainly ethnic Pashtuns from the south, from the rural south. This does not represent Afghanistan. And whether it's civil resistance or military resistance, it this is an unstable situation. It's a catastrophe in terms of people's hopes and dreams and even their ability to feed themselves this takeover. But it's also, it's also a situation in flux where no one can really be sure about the future. And of course, I mean, coming back to your first question about the evacuations, it's a massive brain drain happening. Many, many educated Afghans, people with bigger aspirations, awkward people who've been doing human rights work, journalism, asking difficult questions of the government as well as the Taliban. Many of these people are now out. And those are the sort of people who, who bring progressive change to a country. That was Kate Clark from the Afghanistan Analysts Network. With me today is Shashank Joshi, defence editor at The Economist. Uh, Shashank, Kate Clark says that the collapse of Afghanistan wasn't inevitable. But when you look at the series of decisions and actions that were taken, it certainly looks like it was likely to happen. Yes, I think Kate did an excellent job of spelling out the cascading decisions taken both by the United States in recent years, including political ones to engage 
the Taliban and make concessions to them without much in way of return, uh, along with failures of the Afghan leadership. And there are so many other, more other things we could point to, including decisions taken many years ago to build a large Afghan army in the Western image, an army reliant on technology, on air power, on equipment that was too complex for them to maintain and service. You know, this is a failure that has, I think, many, many causes. And we've seen those desperate scenes around Kabul airport over the past week. And as foreign forces leave, that's presumably only going to get worse. It's much worse. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we're now really in the very, very last phase of withdrawal. Really, time is running out. You still have British nationals outside Kabul airport, particularly dual nationals, who I think have been not been treated with the care they deserve. The fact of the matter is, most foreign nationals are going to get out. But a very large number of Afghans who were eligible to leave because of their service with coalition forces over the last 20 years will not be able to do so. And that's going to create a, a very difficult political dynamic because it will then be up to the Taliban to let them leave or make them stay. Well, at a virtual gathering of G7 leaders, Joe Biden rejected calls from the UK and others to extend the deadline for evacuations from Afghanistan. And the president later warned of a growing terrorist threat if Western forces stay any longer. A terrorist group known as ISIS-K, an ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan, which is a sworn enemy of the Taliban as well. Every day we're on the ground is another day we know that ISIS-K is seeking to target the airport and attack both U.S. and allied forces and innocent civilians. Defence Minister James Heapy, who himself served in Afghanistan, admits the coming hours will be difficult. We've needed to take some measures, the detail of which I won't discuss, but your audience more than any other will have an instinct for what was required in order to just clear the area around the hotel and to try to put a bit more depth into our defences. This security situation will mean that whilst we've been warning throughout that we won't get everybody out, this will mean that there are more people who won't get out than we would have hoped for. You know, when you give something of yourself to a country like Afghanistan, when you, you know, I risked my life there. I risk the opportunity to not be able to get married, not be able to have children. I, I, you know, I sort of, you know, I, of course, there's a bit of you, therefore, that just deeply, instinctively cares for that country and wants the very best for it. And that, and it makes me sick to see the scenes as they unfold now. Um, at least as a minister, I have the opportunity to, 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 to try to shape a, a you know, a, a better future than the one that looks on the cards right now. But a, it's not, it's not comfortable. Shashank Joshi, ISIS-K might be a new name to some, but it was designated as a foreign terror group by the US five years ago. What do we know about them? Well, of course, people know about ISIS, the Islamic State uh, uh, in Iraq and Syria, which, which had a so-called caliphate that was then destroyed. Um, ISIL-K or ISIS-K is, is, is what they call ISIS-Khorasan, Khorasan being the name that jihadists used to describe the ancient area that covered Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's bitterly opposed to the Taliban. It is active in eastern Afghanistan, notably areas sort of like, uh, you know, Nuristan, Kunduz in the north. They've struck repeatedly inside Kabul in recent years, um, even though they've lost huge numbers of fighters to American action. They are a much, much more vicious group. They, they target the Shia Hazara minority in Afghanistan in ways that the Taliban have not recently done. And they are absolutely dead set on disrupting this evacuation with a terrorist spectacular. That's, I think, very clear. How powerful are they? 
Well, numerically, the UN's estimates that their range is between somewhere between 500 people and 1,500 people, uh, perhaps larger than that. Um, their membership probably overlaps with members of the Pakistani Taliban, which is a distinct organisation. But in terms of their, their reach, they've demonstrated their ability to conduct quite complex suicide bombings against, uh, you know, Western targets, against um, minorities, right in the heart of the capital, Kabul, in, uh, you know, repeatedly over and over again. And although the Taliban are now in control of Kabul, the Taliban are not used to controlling a city. They're not accustomed to being the local security forces. They're insurgents. Uh, you know, are, they're not, they're not counter-terrorist fighters. They're not intelligence officers. And so what, I suspect one of the reasons that we saw the CIA chief, Bill Burns, go to Kabul um, on August 23rd to talk to the first deputy leader of the Taliban, Mullah Abdul Ghani Barada, was probably to talk about the threat from Islamic State. It was probably to give over some intelligence to the Taliban. And a reminder that this episode was recorded before the explosion outside Kabul airport today. Well, the sight of remaining foreign troops leaving Afghanistan will dominate TV screens in the coming days. But what about the longer-term impact on trust in the West's military powers? Tony Blair, who as Prime Minister sent British forces into Afghanistan, fears what might follow. The West has to understand that when we do something like this, the signal it sends out is one of inconstancy. It's, 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 it's one that says, look, if the going gets tough, we're out. Many people, as a result of what's happened in Afghanistan, are going to have a, a deep doubt as to whether we can be relied upon. As Shashank, he went on to say, your friends should have confidence and your foes should be worried. Is that the case right now? Well, I, I think that certainly China is presenting the image as though it's very pleased that it, America has been humiliated. It's been writing, the state-run media has been writing threatening editorials to Taiwan saying, look, America, you know, is left Afghanistan after suffering a few thousand casualties. It would suffer many more in a contingency over Taiwan. So you should really stop relying on them. But I think in practice, let's be very honest here. Afghanistan is Afghanistan. It's a 20-year conflict. America spent more than $2 trillion. It tried for 20 years. It surged forces to 110,000 during the Obama era, and it couldn't remake the state, no doubt because of mistakes that it made, as Kate Clark identified earlier. I think it's very different to a situation uh, strategically, the strategic importance of, of the situation, of, uh, for example, in Europe with NATO. I think the loss of Estonia or Poland is, is completely different, or the loss of Japan or the loss of Taiwan. I think these are strategically much more important to the United States. And therefore, I myself am wary of those who say America's credibility is totally shot and allies will have no faith. I think allies actually understand that situations differ and Afghanistan in some way was sui generis. And in terms of the withdrawal, while this was certainly not the orderly withdrawal Joe Biden promised, it's worth asking what a good withdrawal from Afghanistan would have looked like. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. You know, Biden said, look, the chaos would have ensued anyway. I think there's reason to push back on that, though. August 31st is a self-imposed and arbitrary deadline by the Americans. And on top of that, why did they close Bagram Air Base, an enormous air base, not very far from Kabul? Why did they close it overnight without telling Afghan commanders and leaving when it could have been a very useful site? Well, the reason they did it, it was because President Biden set pretty artificial constraints on the number of troops that could remain in the country. I think all of that, frankly, in my view, are unforced errors on part of the United States. Well, in Whitehall, some government sources suggest events in Kabul have soured relations between Britain and the US. For some, it's highlighted the extent to which 
the UK's forces are reliant on US support in any major operation. General Sir Richard Barons was Commander Joint Forces Command between 2013 and 2016 and before that headed an ISAF unit trying to encourage Taliban fighters to surrender. What capability do we have to have to stand up for ourselves with our friends and not be so reliant on the US because the US is carving its own path as it actually always does. Because right now we have found that we're not big enough, strong enough to do the things that we need to do to protect the people that we need to protect. And, and that's not a situation that we're comfortable with. Tom Tugendhat chairs the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. He's also a veteran of the campaign in Afghanistan and in the Commons last week condemned President Biden's criticisms of Afghan soldiers. So does he still view those words as shameful? Look, I think that the president made some unfortunate remarks, and I'm very glad that he hasn't repeated them. Um, my views are on the record, and I stand by them. What I'd like to see now is the president of the United States championing assistance to the Afghan people, to those who are in country, using the UN agencies to make sure that we provide the aid that they need and keeping it out of the hands of the Taliban, and to those who are uh, in refugee camps uh, in the region, uh, you, you know, working with other UN agencies to make sure we support them. And amid the talk about our reliance on the US, is there a will or ability to scale our own capabilities to be more independent in future? Well, look, I'd like to see us scaling our own capabilities, of course, but it's not just about scaling capabilities, it's also about integrating. Because the reality is that we integrate extremely well with the French armed forces. I'd like to see that rolled out much more closely with other European NATO partners and indeed with others around the world. Uh, because I think we need to make sure that we are not solely dependent on a single partner. Because, really, in the end, we're always going to be America's junior partner, aren't we? There's no need to be so if we're bringing something uh, particular to the, to, the, to the party. And if we're bringing uh, an integrated allied network, uh, then I don't think that's necessary at all. Because the reality is modern operations, modern military operations, of course they rely on combat power, we all know that. But they rely on a lot more than that. They rely on the ability to deliver political results. Because as we all know, the truth about the military is it can't win a war. All it can do is suppress an enemy long enough for politicians to win the peace. As an Afghan veteran, how do you feel about that prospect that people won't get out? Not everyone will. I mean, it's completely heartbreaking. I mean, anybody who's served in Afghanistan knows the, the absolutely essential value of interpreters to our operation. They're not, you know, they weren't, they're not tools, they're not things, they're people, they're people we worked with. They were our, our brothers in arms in many ways, you know, except they were unarmed. And they, they, they risked everything with us and, and very sadly some of them were killed and injured. So, you know, we, we really need to, well, anybody who's served knows they matter. Tom Tugendhat speaking to me earlier. Well, back to Shashank Joshi. Shashank, what did you make of the comments by the former Chief of the Defence Staff, Lord Richards, who said NATO members have had their defence on the cheap, courtesy of the US, and it's all coming home to roost? Well, everyone knows that's true. Of course, I'm, sh I'm kind of surprised that people are only waking up to that point now. You know, anyone who's observed defence, which I'm sure lots of your listeners have for a long time, knows this very, very well. Look at, look at, look at Libya. Yeah, well, look, go further back. Look at 
sort of Helmand or Basra, where UK forces, you know, really struggled with key assets, particularly helicopters, without the Americans. Look at Libya, the Libya campaign, where Europeans lacked really vital things like refuelling aircraft. Look at French operations in the Sahel. You know, they didn't have enough transport, uh, a sea lift and airlift. Uh, I could go on and on and on. So I'm afraid if you're only learning this now in Afghanistan, I'm afraid to say you haven't been paying attention. Well, as the evacuation in Kabul moved into its final phase, the Colonel Commandant of the Parachute Regiment praised troops at the heart of the crisis. Major General Andrew Harrison said only those deployed to the airport will be able to understand the pressure they face. Well, Lieutenant General James Bashel is a former commander of two para who served with them in Afghanistan. They're under you know, extreme amount of uh, pressure, not least because the world is watching. But for, for any soldiers involved in that sort of operation, it requires a great deal of diplomacy, guile, precision, and considerable humanity to have to deal with the awful human situation which they are confronted with at very close quarters. And I imagine some of them, perhaps not just the young ones, will, will need to be some, have some counselling perhaps when they come home to make sure that they've, they're okay, because I think it is deeply depressing perhaps and, and rather shocking to leave the United Kingdom and be put straight into that environment and to have to witness such um, humanitarian hardship. Lieutenant General James Bashel there. Well, for veterans of the conflict, it's been a difficult time. Louise Jones served in Afghanistan and last week took a government minister to task on the BBC's Question Time programme over the refusal to stage a full inquiry into the conflict. I deployed at the end of 2017. Uh, I did the standard six months out there uh, supporting Operation Toral. Uh, the majority of my work was uh, supporting liaison between uh, British forces and some of our Afghan partners. Uh, so I, I got to know and work with quite a few Afghans and uh, really appreciate their, their hopes for their, their future. And how has it felt watching the country fall to the Taliban and seeing what's happening at Kabul airport? It's been heart-wrenching. It really has. So painful to see you know so many girls were going to school uh you know even just little things like girls skateboarding um you know these are real indications that they were starting to build the kind of lives that you know i'm very much taken for granted um over here in the west the afghan forces have sustained very heavy casualties during their fight with the taliban you know to have that rug pulled from under you effectively you know it feels like a very painful way for this to have happened you do look at it and think well you know there's so many lessons that we should be learning here from 20 years what's what's worked and what's clearly not worked you know we've invested a lot of time a lot of money since my appearance I've received no end of messages from people agreeing with me and saying their own examples of you know, being so frustrated with seeing everyone around them working so hard, but, you know, feeling that the wider context of the military operations were going in the wrong direction. So there's just, you know, overwhelming sadness, but then the frustration that we aren't going to learn lessons from this and we risk it happening again. And you have challenged a government minister directly over the refusal to stage a full inquiry into the Afghan campaign. Why do you think it's so essential. I think it's very, very important that there is an objective eye cast over these decisions. And so it's so important that the military isn't just left to mark its own homework. You know what, it's not just about finding what went wrong. It's also about finding what went right so that we know that we can capture this going forward. And what about the other veterans you speak to, Louise? What's the mood amongst them at the moment? Certainly initially, there was just, there was shock and, and anger. So much anger. 
a lot of veterans that I know form personal links with Afghans. Um, they've got uh, Afghans that they've worked with that are either still in Afghanistan or have managed to evacuate. So for, for many of us, there's this real personal feeling. There's these people that we work with and respected. And, you know, that just makes it extra painful because it's not just something that we read about in the news about a place that's far away. It's, you know, it's it's our close links. These, these are the people that we seriously care about. There's also been a growing sense of numbness. That's what I'm finding quite sad to see is that as the anger is dispersing, there is a sense of, well, it's over now. There won't be the people held accountable that should be held accountable. So there's, there's, there's definitely an element of numbness, which I think is sad to see. That was Louise Jones. Back to Shashank Joshi now. Um, Shashank, do you think what we may well have learned from all of this is that simply we can't nation build and we shouldn't try and do so? It depends what we mean by that. In, in, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, we failed to do so. But there are other places where we have been able to support local efforts at crafting a more sustainable peace after long and bitter conflicts. And I would point to the Balkans. Um, the Balkans are by no means a perfect you know, political area and there are still huge problems with corruption and instability uh, and, and ethnic strife. But somewhere like Bosnia is not a collapsed state in the manner of, of, of Afghanistan. Um, look at Kosovo. It's a place with lots of problems, but Western forces did lots of good there. Was that nation building? Perhaps not on the scale of Afghanistan. But I would just say, you know, let's, let's, let's learn the right lessons rather than say, we are hopeless and we can't do anything right. I think that would be a mistake. Um, you know, I think as Kate Clark did right at the beginning, let's identify the mistakes we made in terms of the sort of army we built, the support we provided to local politicians, all of those different things, uh, and take that away. If we simply said the West is incapable of anything and we are useless and weak, it would really just serve no one's purpose other than that of Russia, China and, 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 our, and our adversaries. And I don't think that's very helpful either. Shashank Joshi from The Economist, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Before we go, the Paralympics are underway in Tokyo and of the five British Forces athletes competing for Team GB, three are there after life-changing injuries in Afghanistan. As John Knighton reports, one has already won a gold medal. Jacko Van Gass's brilliant performance on the track, beating fellow Brit Finn Graham, has not only won the C3 3000 metre individual pursuit title, he's also smashed the world record in doing so. It's the crowning glory for the 35-year-old who's taken on the world since suffering life changing injuries when he was hit by a rocket propelled grenade in 2009 in Afghanistan. Skiing, marathon running, trekking across the North Pole and nearly conquering Everest. But it's another games that's prepared him for Tokyo. The Invictus Games played a huge part just what the event offered. I remember that night, I remember it so clearly, I barely slept. I was so nervous the night before. And it, it almost gives you a it gives you a comfort blanket to a degree like if I do go to a games, I can actually still perform at the highest level with very little sleep and being nervous. But in the meantime we've actually learned to to channel those nerves in you know in a better way and actually use that as energy now. It's been a long hard road for our forces athletes to qualify for Tokyo twenty twenty. For Staff Sergeant Mickey Yule, who lost both legs following an IED blast in Helmand in July 2010, this will be his second Paralympics. He's the current European 72 kilo champion. But qualifying for Tokyo was a close run thing. I bet my main competition by 20 grams in body weight on the day. We lifted the same weight, 185 kgs, but I was lighter than him. So 
so I, so I won. I think maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I was really down on strength. This is even before the pandemic. And to think that I would have qualified on my very last lift at the very last comp, I, I wouldn't have think I would have been able to do that. Going there to compete hard, lift big, and then hopefully come back with a medal. Covid has played a massive part in all of the athletes' preparations, not least the Games being delayed by a year, but also in qualifying itself. So has the extra training time been a positive or negative? The military's outstanding male triathlete, the RAF's SAC Luke Pollard, is acting as a guide for visually impaired Dave Ellis, who missed qualifying for both London 2012 and Rio 2016. Both say they valued the extra training time. Dave first. Not being able to like swim or access the uh, the group facility it meant I did a little bit more training, run bike, and then just added the swim back in. So it's like ended up with a bigger total volume. So I think that's helped. So I think overall it has helped. Nothing uh, wrong with more time to train and prepare, and uh, we've really honed in in some more skills and you know better performances. You know, I've learned quite a lot and, you know, you pick up quite a lot of stuff from, you know, the athletes around us. The RAF regiment Stu Robinson lost both his legs in an IED explosion in 2013 in what was his fourth tour of duty in Afghanistan. Because of funding issues, the GB wheelchair rugby team nearly didn't make it to Tokyo at all. But the squad was amongst the first to be announced. A personal and team triumph for Stu. It's something we've been working towards for the last, I would say for the last four or five years. But I think I've had a goal since uh, since I came out of well, since I was injured. And kind of my rehab kicked off that I wanted to at least try and compete at, at one Paralympic Games. And obviously we've fast forwarded a few few years and here we are now. And, but from a, a team perspective as well, like you said, the, the issues that we've had uh, over, the, over the few years... I think it's really um, brought us all together, formed quite a, a close, close-knit bond for, between each player. I think the longer that we've gone on together, we're just looking forward to getting out of there and managing to uh, play the best that we can and hopefully come away with a medal. The whole essence of the Paralympics is about triumph over adversity. This group have already had more to deal with than most, as they strive to be the very best, and which Jacko van Gas has already shown they are. John Knighton with that report. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Shashank Joshi and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.